Hello, and welcome to Tech Buzzwords from whatis.com. I'm Alex Howard, Associate Editor at whatis.com, the online IT encyclopedia and learning center. As always, we invite you to visit whatis.com, the secret of those who always seem to know it all, and sign up for the word of the day and buzzword newsletters. Learn one new thing every day. This week, the buzzword is crowdsourcing, and what a buzzword it is. Since writer Jeff Howe published a piece that introduced crowdsourcing in the June issue of Wired Magazine in 2006, the concept and its application has taken off. Gannett Newspapers is crowdsourcing some of its news. Procter & Gamble is crowdsourcing some of its thorniest research and development challenges. Frito-Lay has crowdsourced making its Super Bowl ad this year. And Linden Labs has crowdsourced nearly all of Second Life, allowing users to create and populate that immersive three-dimensional world with objects, avatars, and interactivity. And that's all just the beginning. To learn more about what crowdsourcing is, who's doing it, and what the trend might mean for the future of media and work, I interviewed Jeff Howe last week. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for joining Tech Buzzwords today. Uh, the, the pleasure's all mine, Alex. Can you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background in writing and technology and where you got your start, what you write about? Uh, I work at Wired Magazine. I've been there since 2001 as a full-time contract writer, our contributing editor, as we're called. My beat there is, is really media and entertainment industries and more generally business trends. I started writing about technology specifically for the Village Voice in the late 90s. I moved to Inside.com when that was a going concern, brief but glorious period, <laughs> and then went to Wired directly afterwards in, in 2001. Great. Well, uh, as you know, uh, having worked at Inside.com and, and in tech in general, um, in IT, uh, we define things pretty carefully sometimes. <laughs> right. And uh, that's certainly the case in whatis.com, where every word and the structure of the definition itself uh, is pretty crucial to conveying a concept as clearly and as concisely as possible. Um, well, here's what I think your preferred definition for crowdsourcing is, and please correct me or amend it as needed afterwards. Uh, crowdsourcing is the act of taking a function traditionally performed by an employee and outsourcing it to an undefined, generally large group of people. Is that about right? Yes, and I, I, I tend to tag on there uh, almost always using the Internet or, or you know, employing the Internet as a means um, it, it almost goes without saying be, because it is so generally the case, uh, but I, I, I like to have it on there because it's such an Internet-powered phenomenon that technology deserves to be in the definition. Now, where did your original idea from the article come from? From you, where did you uh, did you did you pitch it? Did it come out of uh, you know a midnight brainstorm? What was uh, where does the term crowdsourcing come from in your brain? Um, well, it's funny. I was uh, Wired had flown me out to uh, St. Louis. Uh, occasionally, occasionally, the marketing staff will ask one of the editors or writers uh, to give a presentation to some executives on uh, sort of a. It, it either pertains to. Uh, a story that we've recently published, which is often the case, or as uh, I, I, I was going to talk about MySpace, um, and then literally 24 hours before I had to fly off to St. Louis, uh, I live in, in Brooklyn, New York, uh, I, I, I got the idea that what I really liked about MySpace was the fact that, that there wasn't much of a company there at all, um, that, that really that the content was being produced by users. And so I, I, I started with that and then stayed up all night at the office 
using Nexus Lexus and, and the web and looking up everything I could under user-generated and gave my presentation as a behind-the-reporter's-notebook sort of idea. And it was very unformed. I talked a lot about, uh, mostly, in fact, about advertising models, which, which has not has not received as much attention as a crowdsourcing phenomenon as I think it probably deserves, uh, even, even on my blog, even, even though it's sort of a pet fascination of mine. Um, but I, I talked a lot about the Converse Gallery campaign, which is uh, where uh, uh, Converse's advertising agency, it's, it's, it's small, oh, it's Butler, Butler and Shine, I think, uh, in San Francisco, had said had had approached Converse. They, Converse wanted to reinvent their their, their Chuck Taylor brand. It's you know very old, revered brand, but had been declining in sales for years. And Butler and Shine said, "What if we just say tell the consumers to make their own ads?" And Converse was fairly skeptical, but said, "Let's give it a shot. It's cheap, after all." And Converse came, or the, you know, the consumers came back. It was, you know, Chuck Taylor's especially what's known as a passion brand, uh, where you have people who've, who've only worn Chuck Taylor's for 30 years, and they love their Chuck Taylor's, and a lot of them happen to be creative people. And so I think, you know, several years now, the, can't, the, get, the Converse Gallery is still around. It has resulted in the creation of 40 major TV spots. The, 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 the videos had to be 20 sec- 22 seconds long with some branding wrapped around it on either side, but the videos themselves didn't even have to show the shoe, and in fact often did not show the shoe. And I found it was about, the campaign was, this was, this was late to 05 when this, or I guess early 06 when, when I was giving this presentation, and I was so taken with, with the Converse Gallery campaign that after, after I gave this presentation to these Anheuser-Busch executives, I called my editor. I said, there's something here. There's, there's, there's a, you know, I don't know what it is, but this, it's not just user-generated content. It's not just a content thing. This is more than advertising. This is something underlying this, and it's a revolution. And, and my, my editor said, well, it's outsourcing to the crowd. And I said, or crowdsourcing. And yes. and so we were laughing about it. We didn't really take it very seriously. But I always he is officially his name is Mark Robinson. He receives and deservedly uh, co credit for coining the term um, because uh, it was really uh, you know it was a conversation between the two of us. And I have to say he was like that's a buzzword. And I said well if you say so. And <laughs> we uh, uh, w- within a week we had it written up. I'd done a lot of research. Um, took it to a pitch meeting at Wired, which are very formal, very, it's like running the gauntlet. It, mm-hmm. is, it can be a very rigorous event, getting a feature commissioned at Wired. And uh, we basically got a yellow light on it, which was take two weeks, find out if, this, if, your, if your speculation is correct, and if it is, we'll do a story. And I went out and just about killed myself working, you know, a couple of 80-hour weeks calling up everyone I could because there, there, there was no real documentation. I mean, journalists and even academics, uh, although academics were at least beginning to sniff around. I mean, there were some crucial thinkers who were looking at different parts of this, but no one, no one had really connected the dots before and said this is all part of the same phenomenon. And no one had tried to create an umbrella term. I mean, people were in their little verticals. They were in the sciences, or they were in advertising, or they were in, in video entertainment, or they were in journalism. And no one said this is all the same thing, except, interestingly, the users. The same people who are willing to create a Converse ad also have incredible MySpace pages, are also putting up photos on Flickr, also have uh, you know a great blog. They're 20 years old. 
they aren't consumed by their college classes yet. They're not consumed by their own ambitions. They have a lot of spare time, and they make a lot of shit. They just are spontaneously creative people, and uh, it's very much technology-powered. And it was, it was these people that I really became fascinated with. And the more I dug into it, I said, this is amazing, and it is absolutely cross-genre. It's a, it's a, it's a crossover phenomenon. It's in, a, it's in the, the most disparate, imaginable fields. Uh, you know, range of fields, and and that's what we really strove for in that article was was to show that was that this was that this was a broad social trend and not not inherent in any single industry or field. Well, you you touched on a lot of things there, and I, I want to come back to uh, a couple of them later in the, in the uh, podcast, uh, including uh, the academics because uh, some of them are starting to really come out with some more interesting Absolutely. things. Uh, certainly, the advertising, and uh, it's a quick moment actually <clears throat> to mention. To the listeners, that uh, you can find your blog if you just type in crowdsourcing.com. That's right. And, or, or uh, .net. Yeah, sure. and, and you yeah, can find uh, the original crowdsourcing article in wired.com. Uh, uh, so they're, yeah. they're they're all there. Yep. Uh, now in that in that article, um, you uh, you gave uh, basically four uh, different case studies, and that goes right to what you just said about how it reaches over different industries and uh, different verticals. Let's see, you've got the professional, the packager, the tinkerer. And then the masses, and you give uh, each, you know, an example in each in each sense, and in several, you know, certainly for the last one for the masses, uh, the examples have pro- proliferated uh, quite a bit <laughs> since he wrote the article. Yeah, uh, you well, know, they absolutely have. You know, Wiki- Wikipedia and Wikimapia, uh, YouTube, Dig, uh, Slashdot, and all the other social bookmarking or tagging uh, Web 2.0 sites have certainly uh, popped up since then. Uh, can you just go through uh, the professional, the packager, the tinkerer, and the masses in each case? Talk about your example for each one of those and, and what's going on there. I think that stock photography is, or the micro stocks as they're called, is, is, a, is an almost pure example. It's not quite pure, but it's, it's very close to it. It's also a, a really easy way to convey the, under, you know, the basic idea of crowdsourcing. Essentially, <clears throat> stock photography is pre-shot photography. A, a professional photographer, uh, let's say that he's a fashion photographer, uh, will, will sell uh, his A-roll to uh, Vogue, and his B-roll he'll sell to a stock house. Uh, in the last several years, there's been massive conglomeration, so it's really just Getty, uh, which is a British stock firm, and Corbis, uh, which is uh, Bill Gates's stock house. Uh, and then what will what, happen is, is a magazine or a newspaper or a website, it could be, needs a cheap photo. They don't want to commission a photographer. They would go to one of these stock houses and, and say, okay, well, for $200, I'll get f- first-time rights, uh, you know, exclusive for six months on this image. And then they would get to run it with a guarantee that wouldn't appear anywhere else for six months. Uh, well, as you can imagine, for a lot of smaller websites and nonprofits, uh, even $150 was, was, was pretty dear. What happened is in the explosion of digital photography, uh, you know, the explosion of images online that accompanied uh, you know, the, the, uh, the ubiquity of cheap, uh, fairly high-resolution digital cameras, you had all these amateurs taking pretty damn good photographs. They had a copy of, uh, you know, it could be Photoshop. Mm-hmm. It's pretty easy to download a copy of Photoshop for anyone who uses a file sharing program, you know, be it illegally, uh, albeit illegally rather. Um, 
but uh, you know, even using iPhoto, you can you know an amateur photographer uh, can turn out a, a, a fairly professional looking photo, or or at least and and this is really the point, a photo that will work at a resolution an image size needed by a website. Sure. Uh, because these because these amateur photographers aren't trying to make a living on it, the way the model has worked out is these uh, you know and, and I used iStock Photo because it was the it was the original mm-hmm. uh, my, micro stock house is, is they realized that they could get away with a, in fact at first they were giving these photos away uh, and then when they did turn it into a commercial model they were only charging between one and three dollars which is certainly a good bit less than 150 uh, could we just segue into the uh, academics of this a little bit because uh, you know there's been some great research conducted by Kareem Lakani over at Harvard Business School uh, formerly of MIT Kareem is just a giant in the field for me I mean his, his, his studies have been really influential He's also been very generous with his time. I very much appreciated his concentration on on the motivation of of uh, open source contributors and and crowdsourcing contributors. Uh, unlike open source, crowdsourcing doesn't imply volunteer labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be volunteer labor. It doesn't need to be. It, it is generally low paid labor mm-hmm. um, when it's paid, but uh, it doesn't need to be low paid. Uh, some models aren't low paid at all. Some models are pretty competitive. Um, but uh, g- you know, generally speaking, it's volunteer or low paid, and so motivation is fairly integral issue or, or, or question that needs to be addressed when you, when you start thinking of why crowdsourcing works. Motivation is a, a huge question, a huge issue, mm-hmm. um, in to, to understanding why crowdsourcing works. And I think what, you know, Cream is really good at sort of teasing out the central, sort of the broad strokes meanings behind, uh, you know, what was say like a two-year-long study. One little anecdote he gave me was that one of his questions at some point in his dissertation research, so he asked open source programmers what they would do if they had 25 hours in, in a day instead of 24. And something like 85% said they would program. Which is why Google's model has done quite so well, and I think right. in terms of allowing people there to, that would, I think, 30% of their time to do that 25th hour. Yeah. You know, and that, that's, that's really powerful. And a lot of the Google Labs experiments have come out of that. Think about incentives in the context of, of open source. There's just case study after case study where people are spending incredible amounts of time producing things that have quite a bit of value to the community but don't monetize at all. Right. You know, um, citizen journalism, perfect example. Yeah. You know, so-called uh, Second Life, love to get to that. Um, what Gannett Newspapers is doing with crowdsourcing. The question of with the, these really small uh, tasks like uh, Amazon's Mechanical Turk, which I'd love to get to talk to about a little bit as well. Um, you know, there's not that much monetary value there, but people are still doing it. Yeah. Well, and, and this one, now Mechanical Turk is where we get to a real mystery, because let's, let's, let's assume that, it, as in the case with open source programming, that passion is, is a motivating factor. Labor of love stuff. Uh, yeah, the, it's a labor of love. And, and then we can break it down from there, and, and, and Kareem has, and I encourage anyone listening to check out uh, Kareem's blog. Or, yep. uh, you know, in fact, let's spell this for people, because that's sure. the easiest way, just yep. Google Kareem. Yep. It's K-A-R-I-M. 
uh, L-A-K-H-A-N-I, Kareem yeah. Lakani. He was at MIT, now he's at Harvard. Correct, Harvard um, Business School. Yeah. And he, he's just done seminal research into uh, not so much open source itself, which has a fairly extensive literature, um, but but looking at the people the people who contribute and why they contribute, and now he's also he's he's branching out and starting to look at, at beyond software at crowdsourcing projects mm-hmm. as well. So I consider him sort of a partner in crime, um, <laughs> and uh, you know he breaks it down. It's not just its passion. So okay, for, so you know it's non-financial, but then from there there are, are factors within that, like uh, one that's and he, he has them actually in order because he's quantified his survey you know re- responses, but. Uh, you know, I, I don't recall the order of importance for his survey pool, but I recall how it broke down. And one was that it's been pretty well established in communities that, that people work for reputation, or what Cory Doctorow coined as woof, woofy, which I love it. It's, it's, a, it, it's like a, a woofy in one of his in Doctorow's science fiction novels is, is actually a unit of reputation exchange. So it's like if you have 10 woofies, you're uh, you know a big man on campus, and if you have one, then you're like, you know, was and no one knows who you are. And if anyone somehow missed him, uh, Cory Doctorow uh, is a blogger over at Boing Boing and has uh, released quite a few uh, science fiction novels for free online, speaking That's of right. uh, open source. So That's right. if you've missed and Boing Boing, go on over. Is, is all, all around scarily prescient and entertaining and, and another uh, uh, giant in, in all fields tech. But, well, I, yeah, uh, I, I but think I want to see uh, Corey, Dr. Bruce Sterling, and Neil Stevenson sit down for a roundtable sometimes. <laughs> I, I'd, be, I'd be shocked to find that that hasn't happened. Well, maybe, maybe not with Neil Stevenson, but I'd, I'd love to be there for that, too. So people are working for... Uh, uh, for, for reputation, mm-hmm. and and this this often has uh, indirect financial benefits. I mean, if you're uh, if if you get a name uh, for really knowing Apache server software within the open source community, well, that can lead to you know hundreds of thousands of dollars annually in in consulting fees and 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 commissions, and you form your own company, and and you genuinely love to program, and you do it a lot, you know. And sometimes you do it for free, and sometimes you do it for 400 bucks an hour. Mm-hmm. That reputation isn't to be sniffed at. Chris Anderson, wise editor-in-chief, I think coined the phrase reputation economy, which uh, mm-hmm. has a, uh, is, is a really great lens through which to examine uh, community production and Web 2.0. I mean, it's interesting to see what's happened with some of the free agent marketplaces that have worked and some that haven't. Because there, you know, there's a whole proliferation of. Books. I just read about Elance, and apparently, Dig, incredible site. Uh, Kevin Rose founded it with $200 that he paid a PHP programmer to spend um, from through that site. And I think it's, it's scarcely credible to most people that Dig, this media behemoth, is $200 site. Yeah. It's uh, it's something else I get into in in, in the book. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, I actually say the same thing about YouTube. It's a little less dramatic, but it's simply that uh, if you think about YouTube, you think of this massive company, you know, 1.65 billion. Well, there's only 67 people in two uh, office floors of a San Bruno office building. 67 people uh, run a company that's worth, uh, you know, over over a billion and a half dollars. Sure. Or you know, was valued at such at any rate, probably. To my mind, at least, well valued. I, I didn't. I didn't think that was an inflated number at all. Now I'm wondering about Wikipedia too. I mean, Wikipedia is always. I consider it the Ur uh, crowdsourcing model, or, you know, that sort of the original crowdsourcing model. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was one of the first, uh, at least, dramatic 
and very public migrations of open source mentality into fields outside of software. So Wikipedia is always a lot of fun to look at. So sort of segue from what we were talking about, Wikipedia is a great example. I, I think encycl- since layoffs a couple of years ago, Encyclopedia Britannica uh, employed 350 people. And it, I think that's just the U.S. offices. I, th- I think that they have, you know, probably over 500 if, you, if you're talking globally, um, maybe more. Encycl- uh, Wikipedia, in contrast, uh, unless they've hired more people, which I suppose is possible, but I'm not sure that they would need to, employed two people, and one of them was part-time. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about the most uh, pure form of crowdsourcing you can think of. Uh, you know, one of the chapters in my book is, is titled uh, the Corporation as Community or Community as Corporation. Well, actually, this is one of the things I really wanted to make sure we hit because sure. um, I think one of the, the biggest challenges in terms of describing this model as it applies to more than just, say, user-generated media content online, whether it's podcasts that people are contributing or it's articles that they're editing on Wikipedia or videos that they're contributing to YouTube or stories is submitting to Dig or Slashdot. Once you move outside of those models to more traditional business and corporate, what place does traditional R&D have anymore and how do you protect the intellectual property rights of the individuals who you're crowdsourcing things to? Uh, people like Ed Melkarak, is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, From sure. your uh, article Mel- and... Uh, Melkarak, Edward Melkarak. Melkarak. Yeah, and, and that's, the, that's your uh, case study of the tinkerer and Innocentive. Um, yeah. You know, and I think that's that's something that Green Lacani talked about quite a bit in terms of one of the major challenges is finding new ways to uh, to take care of licensing and intellectual property. Um, I, I think that's right. I mean, you know, th- the crowdsourcing model poses, uh, you know, eno- I want I want to say an enormous amount of regulatory issues and and legal issues and moral issues. So yeah, m- moral and and legal and uh, uh, sort of governance issues, uh, regulatory issues, and and licensing and intellectual property is certainly one of them. To a certain extent, we're in a creative commons society, and that goes doubly for uh, online communities, which are largely, and I, I just want for your, for your listeners, uh, Creative Commons is the alternative copyright system set up by Lawrence Lessig, and it allows you to, uh, say, copyright a song that you've written that freely allows people to use it, uh, to mash it up, to, for a DJ to take it and put it against some break beats. It allows for a bunch of creative levels of copyright protection. I think that a lot of people have absorbed that attitude towards intellectual property without even, they may not even know of Creative Commons, but they, uh, especially a youth demographic, let's call it, you know, 15 to 24 year olds or even 12 to 24 year olds, uh, they just, that, that uh, information wants to be free. They assume that. They may have never heard that creed, which was so important to the open source movement in the 90s. They've internalized it, and I think our society to some extent has internalized it. Now, this raises all sorts of issues. If you sell a T-shirt designed to Threadless, you make 1500 bucks. A Threadless could very well be making money off your design for the next decade. I mean, to the tune of hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. I mean, that's that's uh, threadless.com, right? That's another yeah, word. And you I'm get sorry. that uh, link. On, I think you put the link up on your blog if anyone wants to go find that. Yeah, and, and threadless.com, just so people know, because it's really, it's almost the easiest illustration of what crowdsourcing is. It's, it's, it's an ongoing weekly T-shirt design competition in which the community of, I think it's roughly 300,000 regular users, uh, people who come back at least once a month, uh, Vote, uh, submit designs uh, once a week, and then they usually receive somewhere in the region of 1,500 t-shirt designs, and the community drifts through all these and votes, and then the the top six are 
are maybe, uh, some weeks it's 10, I think it's generally between 6 and 10. Most popular designs are then fabricated into t-shirts. And uh, they sell out every time. People want to buy, this is a, hmm. another phenomenon uh, of crowdsourcing, which uh, well, you know, I, I would say one of the things the crowd does that's really underrated, they don't just vote and filter and know and perform all these other tasks. They also buy, they consume. A voter is just a consumer that hasn't entered the credit card information yet, and you can you can that's true of American Idol, you know, viewers who go and buy the Kelly Clarkson album or the you know Ruben Studdard album, uh, and it's also true in this case of Threadless, where uh, people have feel that they're invested in this since they voted for it, and they want to go and buy it, so they buy the T-shirt they voted for, and they're psyched that their T-shirt won. Uh, you know, or they're bummed that their teacher didn't win, but they liked one of the ones that did. It'll be interesting to see how that transfers. I mean, the example I'm thinking of right off the bat right now is this contest right now that Frito-Lay is running to run somebody's ad in the Super Bowl. Right. You know, and, and the question for me is, okay, well, this is a great first example this year. By the time we get to next year, is there actually going to be, you know, everyone who runs an ad, are they going to have on um, their site, whatever it happens to be, a bunch of, of ads that people submit and then rate, and then the top-rated one of those gets onto the Super Bowl? I mean, are you, are this, is there going to be a meta-filter behind advertising from now on? I think the meta-filter is, is here to stay, or sort of the, our crowd-filtering. So there's all these sort of tributaries that come up the stem of crowdsourcing. There's crowdfunding and crowdcasting and crowd-filtering. Yeah, you mentioned crowdfunding on your blog uh, with Act Blue. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, yeah, crowdfunding is turning into an important one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but crowd-filtering or meta-filtering... Uh, is is going? I mean, a meta filter doesn't necessarily have to involve a crowd, so it's an imprecise word. But uh, you know, dig is sort of the, you know the, the best example or the best known example of the crowd filter, where uh, you know news of the day is is voted on by the crowd. Very very simple idea. Uh, yeah, I think that's here to stay. Do people want? Uh, I mean, at, let's just to keep a stay on advertising. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine people would want user-generated commercials all the time. I mean, is, is there really anything? But I'm, I'm a fan of commercials. I, I don't. Well, I, good I te- commercials. I, exactly. I TiVo right past them, mm-hmm. but to watch them once or twice, they're often better than the show I'm watching. And that can be user-generated, but only when the user in question is incredibly talented and inventive, or maybe just lucky, and they came on a good concept. So I think this, that. The ecosystem we're headed into is a hybrid model. The crowd's ability to know, aka collective intelligence, or James Terwicki's wisdom of wisdom of crowds, mm-hmm. and the the crowd's ability to produce, uh, to actually make things like commercials or podcasts or, or what have you, is is much less important in the end than its ability to filter, uh, because. What we're seeing in, in, this, in this new media ecosystem is that the crowd produces in such quantity, millions and millions of videos posted onto YouTube, that no traditional gatekeeper could ever sift, ever has, has, has the ability to sift through it to find the good stuff. So the crowd needs to do that. So crowdsourcing is only interesting and effective and, and a viable mode of economic production because of that filter, because of crowd filtering. So I, I really think it's the most important thing the crowd does. Now, this comes back, actually, and I'm going put out there, this is one of the most simple, most understandable things from the article. You have uh, five rules of the new labor pool, and you just hit upon one of them. Um, yeah. That the crowd finds the best stuff, 
and that's certainly true on YouTube. There's no way that any one person, again, could look through all those thousands and thousands of videos and find the best stuff without other people doing it and then rating and, and good bringing the good stuff up. Yeah. And uh, so you know, I think your five rules are uh, that the crowd is dispersed, and again, that's the, the effect of the of the web and, and having online connections pretty much everywhere now. The crowd is the shortest attention span. That it's full of specialists, which is especially relevant to incentive um, and that kind of research work. Yeah. Um, that most of what the crowd produces is in fact not very good. <laughs> so you need the crowd to find the best stuff and the the pearls in there. Yeah, and you know, you know, I would have used this if I had found it in time for the article, but mm -hmm. open source programmers employ an axiom known as Sturgeon's Theorem. And Sturgeon was, uh, it sounds all fancy, Sturgeon was a science fiction writer, and he once told an interviewer, why is so much science fiction so bad? And he said, well, 90% of everything is crap, or crud. It's often, I, I hate the word crud. Crap, <laughs> crap's not even a bad word. 90% of everything is crap. And, and so I, I think that Sturgeon's, uh, it's no accident that yet again a, an open source programming principle translates into crowdsourcing. I mean, because that's, Essentially, and this is, in fact, the broader definition of crowdsourcing. I wanted to get okay. this in here mm -hmm. uh, because we led with that definition. It's simply the application of open source principles to fields outside software. Uh, it's, it's a very easy definition, and it, it's effective, I want to say, like 98% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, Which areas is it not effective in? Any industry that does not, I mean, let's, uh, I'm, I'm going to take up the converse uh, of that question, which mm -hmm. is when does it work? It works, it works in any field that traffics in information. So if it can be put into zeros mm -hmm. and ones, crowdsourcing will basically work. So there's, but, you know, it would sound like, well, information economy, everything's information. It's not. I mean, I, well, I, there's I, a I, substantial part of the economy, which is a service economy. So, you know, yeah, that, well, that's right. You know, that's and right. so for those people, that's not bits and bytes. It's not, uh, again, those, those zeros and ones. It hasn't been made binary. It's certainly not something that you can uh, outsource traditionally. Like yeah. a call center, you can outsource, but you can't outsource the drywall. Right. You can subcontract no, right. it three times. That's right. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, you're not going to outsource, you know, dry goods, mm -hmm. which is still a bit, you know, massive part of our economy. You're not, you're not going to crowdsource agriculture, which people tend to forget about. That being said, I know that you do have scarce yeah, time. So yeah. I, what I, I, one thing I really want to talk to, um, we've talked a little bit about uh, some of the issues about intellectual property. We talked somewhat about incentive and how a lot of uh, companies are actually crowdsourcing their R&D and for. Uh, more examples of that, I suggest people go look at Innocentive and, again, look at your article. The different case studies of uh, the professional, we talked about iStock Voter to begin with. Packager, we didn't talk about that too much, but all you have to do is look at uh, Al Gore's current TV or VH1's WebJunk20. Yeah. The thing that I think is interesting, you've mentioned that you wish you'd written more about it, though, is uh, Second Life. Again, for the listeners, uh, you actually went and were interviewed in Second Life. Yeah, uh, a and couple you, times. You know, you can go to Wired and, and see the uh, screenshots from that. Now, was there a video from that anywhere? No. Okay. We just have screenshots. Oh, just so, but uh, if people want to read the interview, that's, I think, linked to from your yeah. blog, and you can find it in Wired. Um, why is Second Life, uh, which is made by Linden Labs, and if you haven't logged on to it yet, it, it's an immersive online three-dimensional world. You walk right. around in avatars. It's based on... Uh, Neil Stevenson, we mentioned earlier, who's a uh, science fiction writer, cyberpunk um, novelist, in fact, who wrote a book called Snow Crash uh, in the early 90s, uh, which is pretty seminal. And it des describes something he calls the, uh, the metaverse, which is basically a three-dimensional uh, version of the Internet. Can you talk a bit about what Second Life is and how it is, one of the, again, one of the best examples of crowdsourcing that's out there? I think that Phil Rosedale's big innovation that Linden Labs 
big innovation was was they said let's not and 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 i just want to go further and say i think the thing that's going to revolutionize video games uh and that will Wright has done in four is is it's not about building the game anymore it's about building the tools so your users can build the game and that in a nutshell is second life second life and again out you know is an inter- excellent introduction i need to add no more really it's it's an immersive environment it's a world you don't go there to i mean there are games you can go there and play you mm-hmm. can go there and find a casino and gamble in yep. you can go there and find video game consoles and play video games within second life but it really is a virtual world yep. and you meet and it's very social you go there and there are people uh it's, it's very easy to teleport somewhere where, you, where a crowd has gathered and introduce yourself and meet people and they're generally very nice and friendly it, the reason it's interesting is because of what the users themselves have created there's nothing really in there that linden lab did i mean they created a template i mean they made hills and some grass and i don't even know if there were buildings there until people came i mean people have literally created the game and enthusiastically mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, begging for the chance they pay for the chance to build linden labs game for them i mean wrap your head around the revolutionary aspect of that model forget this a video game and you know because anyone listening who's not necessarily you know in the wired world uh, you know, you talk to them about metaverse, they're like, well, whatever, this is some crazy thing the kids are doing. You know, no. Like, think of it as a more traditional company. You've got a company that instead of making a product, made the tools to build a product, and then people paid them to come and build the product. The power of this model in those areas where it's applicable, and like we said, it's not applicable. No one's going to, no one's going to, you know, pay for the privilege of working at a McDonald's. That's not going to happen. No one's going to pay for the privilege of putting your drywall in, uh, you know, or driving a, a, a truck from Tulsa to Tuscaloosa. But there are a lot of things that people want to do and are happy to do, essentially for free or very little cost. Uh, and in those areas, boy, <laughs> you know, we're about to see a hurricane. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I think we're, we're seeing it right now in the uh, the newspaper industry. The numbers coming out of there are staggering, and the, the, the they're not necessarily in many cases moving quickly enough to uh, to staunch the flow. You know, there's the online media players are moving so quickly, and the money is flowing to online advertising very quickly. And uh, can you talk a little bit about what uh, Gannett is doing with crowdsourcing and uh, whether you think that citizen journalism is the future of media? You know, can, can print reporters coexist with this model, or, or again, is it really all about the hybridization? Um, I think it's all about the hybridization. I, I actually think that the effect that user-generated content itself is going to have mm-hmm. uh, on, on traditional news has been overstated. I mean, let me be clear. The, the news industry is in for a big change. I think that smart newspapers are going what's, what's being called hyper-local. Mm-hmm. Uh, they understand that if you have a page devoted to stock quotes, you're a moron. I mean, no one is looking at newspaper for stock quotes anymore. Maybe 15, the, the 10% of your readers that don't have broadband or internet at all are looking for you for uh, you know stock quotes or even national sports scores. This stuff, this stuff is now coming in over uh, the internet, and and so you know the, the papers are going really local. There was an extent to which the crowds. Uh, contributes that local information. Uh, does the crowd want to go to a PTA meeting and write up a well-written news article in, in the traditional, what's called an inverted pyramid form? No. 
There's a reason they didn't go to journalism school. They want to do their job, and then they want to come back and hang out with their kids and watch, watch some TV. But th- they are happy to, to send that information in. It's just in a, in a form that's going to need to be packaged and presented by a professional. That's my belief at any rate. I mean, we're, it's, it's very immature what's happening. It's very much in flux. I think that user-generated material is going to revolutionize uh, the newspaper industry. I'm not convinced that it's going to take the form of, you know, newspapers aren't just going to start picking up blog entries and uh, running them in the paper. I, I think they'll devote sections of their website for bloggers, and, and again, it'll be a hybrid. You're going to see, uh, you know, someone who's been covering City Hall for 30 years and is on a first-name basis with every major political figure in, in a city, and it could be a small city, but, uh, you know, the expertise is, is nonetheless important, uh, or is no less important. Uh, you know, that blog is worth reading in a way that... A user's blog isn't. Uh, you know, I mean, you might want to read them both to get very different things. The user's blog may be someone who lives on your block, mm-hmm. so you care about their information in a way you don't care about, uh, you know, the city hall reporters. But when when you're trying to decide how to vote, you want to read the city hall guy. So that that's my big defense for uh, the hybrid model. And Al- I'm afraid with that, I literally have to leave in 20 minutes. No problem. Well, thanks for taking the time. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Jeff for offering his time and perspective on this topic. For more about crowdsourcing, visit our definition for it at whatis.com to find related links and information about the technologies involved. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for the Word of the Day and Buzzword newsletters. If there's something we missed in today's podcast that you'd like us to cover in a future podcast, let us know at editor at what is dot com. Thank you.